Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 9th, 2021. Right now, once again, we have our friend Truthfids here with us on Wednesday morning to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 56 of this series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening, especially if you've made it through 55 parts. In our last presentation, we had illustrated the fulfillment of the prophecy of the angel with the little book, which is found in Revelation chapter 10. The book was open, and in the sequence of the great events of history, of which the Revelation had prophesied from the fall of Rome, The book certainly seems to represent the printing of Bibles, which was facilitated by the Protestant Reformation. At no other time in history was it recorded that the Word of God was purposely withheld from the common man. But that was what the medieval Roman Church had attempted to do, so that the scriptures could only be interpreted by the priests themselves, and the common man would have forever been at mercy, been at the mercy of those priests. While we cannot present a full commentary on the Revelation here, the sequence of historical events from the fall of Rome through the Reformation is very well described in Revelation chapters 8 through 11, as we shall continue to discuss here. However, to see the truth of that assertion, one must start at the beginning while also having a fair understanding of history. As we have already asserted here, no other people have fulfilled these prophecies but white Europeans, among whom they were fulfilled with remarkable precision. Once that is recognized, the fact that white Europeans are the Old Testament Israelites, while Jews, Arabs, and Turks are all devils, is clearly and fully elucidated. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for being here once again. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, as always, as having me. Uh, Yes, today we're going to get deeper into the Revelation, and and this is the one of the parts where, um, you know, know, Jews and and so-called truthers always go off on all crazy tangents on uh, who these two witnesses are with all crazy theories and you know leading um us the israelites astray essentially but um it is very clear that it must be us right the the europeans israel and judah which we're going to get to and um you know you know just the word witness if if you go in a courtroom and and you have a witness the witness uh, testifies that what you're saying is true, right? That's the whole point of a witness. And that's essentially what these witnesses did. They testified that Christ is true, that the Bible is true, that everything about him is is true, that his laws. And, and that's what us Europeans have done. We've created a civilization based on his laws and, and followed his example and, and the prophets. So we must be the witnesses, essentially. Right, Bill? I know we're going to get into all this but deeper, but just a general quick summary that's essentially it right bill well well absolutely right we are the witnesses it it's that there's a greater picture there's a bigger picture where yahweh god has basically been at war with his enemies ever since the fall of adam and even before that 
we being witnesses, we simply being here and being Christians prove that God is true. And if, if this much of the revelation has been fulfilled, we certainly should expect the rest of it to be fulfilled. So the very existence of Israel and Judah in the world today, in the white European Christians, their very existence proves that God is true. And the Jew has endeavored for 2,000 years to destroy Christianity and has not been able to. The Jew has been able to continually subvert and corrupt Christian churches. They have been able to do that. They would get rid of the Bibles tomorrow, and all references to Jesus Christ or to Yahweh God tomorrow, if they had the power to do that. And they came very close to that in the, in the years leading up to the Protestant Reformation. If yeah, Pope they're essentially 10, the opposite of uh, witnesses, right? They're, they're always trying to hide the truth and cover it up, and as you said, completely uh, eradicate Christianity or any semblance of the Bible and God, right? Right. If Pope Leo X had, had succeeded with the Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops to marginalize the scripture, and some of the other things that they were doing were completely sinful, they were using the Roman Catholic Church as a cash cow in, in order to amass wealth to themselves and, and to live luxurious lives. There were reformer theologians all over Europe who were against that, but those reformer theologians were persecuted. The word reformer implies that these men wanted to change the Roman Catholic Church so that it was more in line with the original scriptures. And that is what they wanted. That's what Tyndale wanted. That's what Luther wanted. That, that's generally what Jan Hus wanted. That's what these reformers wanted. And when they came to the point where they realized that the church was never going to reform, that's when they decided to break from the church. It troubled Martin Luther greatly, the thought of breaking from the church. He didn't want to break from the church. And the uh, people who want to uh, get rid of, um, you know, these church sinful traditions and obey the laws of God and follow the example of the Bible, well, surely those would be the Israelites, right? It would just be logical, right? Yes, that is logical because that's the promises which, which Yahweh God had made in the words of the prophets. And it's... If we believe that God is true, and we could actually trace these Germanic tribes from ancient, from the ancient Israelites in history, then the, the handwriting is so clearly on the wall that we shouldn't ignore this. We shouldn't be able to ignore this. This should bother us until we solve the riddle in our own minds. I mean, I'm convinced that this is true or I wouldn't be here. You're obviously convinced that this is true or you wouldn't be here. But for many people, Judeo-Christians out there in the world, the denominational Christians, to hear this, they get offended because it's so contrary to the doctrines of their particular denominational churches. Even though we have all of Scripture to support what we say. And that boils down to methodology and, and why people believe what they do. And, and how they should possibly reconsider the reasons why they believe what they do. But if nothing's wrong, if nothing's going wrong for them, 
then they're not going to be forced to reconsider that. That's a digression. We shall continue to speak of the Reformation from a different perspective than we had last week, and that's the perspective of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. However, first we must reflect on some of the things which we had presented in our last presentation discussing Revelation chapter 10. There we had presented several prophecies where Yahweh God had promised to plead with his people in the wilderness into which they had been sent following the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. We insist that those promises are relevant to understanding the nature of the little book and also to the identity of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 and the location of the woman who fled to the wilderness depicted in Revelation chapter 12. And that will be our next presentation. So we had explained that sometime around 700 BC, in Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh had promised to give drink to his people, where he said, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? Well, yes, we do know it once we stop to consider this history. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. There, Yahweh was not, he was not speaking about literal water. Rather, he was assuring them that his word would reach them. This is illustrated in the Gospel of John in chapter 4, where the Samaritan woman, who had identified herself as an Israelite, saying, Our father Jacob, where she had seen Yahshua, not knowing he was the Christ, and as she drew water from a well, he asked her, Give me to drink. When she expressed surprise that he spoke to her, he said, If you knew the gift of Yahweh, and who is saying to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. Then a little further on, he said, Each who is drinking from this water, meaning the well water, shall thirst again. But he who should drink from the water, which I shall give to him, shall not thirst for eternity. But the water which I shall give to him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. That is the drink which the children of Israel would receive from Yahweh in the wilderness. Bill, what, what does it mean by um, the beasts of the field shall honor him, the dragons and, and the owls? Is that that even uh, non-whites will be forced to acknowledge um, that, that Yahweh is God eventually and that uh, we are his chosen ones? Well, well, it seems that those who claim to be Judeans but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, were made to worship before the feet of the Christian nobles, the Christian nobility in, in Europe, for a thousand years. I will make them to worship, to, to I'm paraphrasing, right? I will make them to, to worship before your feet. Revelation chapter, that's either 2.9 or 3.9. I forget precisely which one it is. They are referenced and that, twice. That was the church of 
Philadelphia was it if I can't remember that basically if we love one another that's what would happen right if we truly cooperate Jews will end up like that right yes because they'll have no other choice yes that's Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 that's the message to the church of Philadelphia which is the church of brotherly love exactly okay sometime later because we don't know exactly when Jeremiah had written every chapter of his prophecy, and they're not even in the correct order in the King James Version of the Bible. There's a totally different order for the chapters in the Septuagint. But sometime after the death of Josiah in 608 BC, and perhaps even later than the fall of Jerusalem in 585, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel had also received promises for the children of Israel in the wilderness. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 that at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Then, and of course, that there may have been tens and tens of thousands of Israelites destroyed by the Assyrians, as the Assyrians had conquered all of their cities between perhaps 743 BC and 676 BC, notably with the fall of Samaria in 721 BC. But there were also tens and tens of thousands of Israelites taken into captivity a few tribes at a time, a different area at a time, starting with the land east of the Jordan River, half of the land of Manasseh and, and the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and with the tribes in Galilee, and ending finally when Esar Hadan in 676 BC is bringing aliens from other tribes, which the Assyrians had conquered, into Samaria, which is seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So sometime after the fall of, after the death of Josiah in 608 BC, or as late as 585 BC, we read this in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's a reference to all the families of Israel, not just Judah, who had been taken into captivity over a hundred years before, and perhaps as long as 160 years before. Then, the same situation exists where Ezekiel wrote. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we read in part, My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. And that is a depiction of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Then a little further on in that same chapter, Yahweh made a promise to come and feed the flocks himself, something which was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ and the spread of the gospel, where we read from verse 11, For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them from out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. 
And then skipping on to verse 14. And I will feed them in a good pasture. And upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall, there shall they lie in a good fold. And in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away. Excuse and, me. And um, that shows that the mountains of Israel are simply where the European people are, right? It's a location is relevant, just where wherever we are, the the greater the nation, the higher the mountain, right? Well, well, right, exactly. We can't imagine that the people are going to be brought back to Palestine. There are other prophecies which prohibited them, especially in Hosea, which prohibited them from returning to Palestine, where, where Yahweh told them that he would hedge up their way with thorns so that they couldn't return. But if we read in Second Samuel in chapter 7, in verse 10, Yahweh is speaking through Nathan the prophet to King David. And this is going on in Jerusalem. And the word of God says that, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And it's evident that the land of Canaan was, even though it was given to them, it was never really a place of their own. They were supposed to destroy the prior inhabitants, and they never destroyed them. So it was never really their own place. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 8, we see a prophecy of what I believe should be cross-referenced to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, which I just read which establishes that, that the land of Palestine cannot be the final destination of the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 32, 8, we read, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And when we read Genesis chapter 10, and all of those nations that existed in the time of Moses, and see where they were settled, most of Europe was empty, and it was still empty, until the Israelites began migrating into northern Europe and the lands north of the Danube, and even many of the lands south of the Danube. So it's clear that that land was empty for a reason, and, and that we would inhabit it later on in history for good reason. And those lands, I, I mean, there were passers-by or passers-through those lands, but they never established any permanent settlements. There is archaeological findings that shows that what were ostensibly Adamic people or white people had passed through parts of Germany as, in, as early as 1500 BC, but there were no permanent settlements. And we know for a fact from ancient history that the Greeks and the Romans and the Thracians were constantly in search of resources. So why wouldn't they pass through most of Europe? But they established no permanent settlements until the, the coming of the Galatahi, the Germanic tribes in Europe, in Germany, in France. That's when the 
permanent settlements were established in the north. Now, there were already Phoenicians in Britain and Phoenicians in some of the French river valleys. But once again, they built no notable culture and had no notable permanent presence in those places. So we don't find any infrastructure from before the time of the Latin culture, perhaps, six or 700 BC. We don't find anything permanent that's much older than that. And if it is, it's just a pile of rocks, maybe a few dolmens or a stone wall. There's no real infrastructure in European history in anywhere in the north of Europe that shows that anybody there had been present for any long period of duration. It's just not there. And to support cities and, and towns, or I should say tribes full of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, in the extreme cold, you have to have infrastructure. You're not going to do it sitting in the ice in caves. That theory of, of the European caveman is rather ridiculous. Caves may have been used at, as temporary shelter at diverse times, but not as permanent shelters. That yeah, I think said. North Europe, there aren't that many like resources that you would send expeditions you know, to mine and all that. At least not like obvious ones, uh, but but of course Britain you had you did have the tin mines close to the coast right, and that explains why there was a lot of Phoenicians there. Well, well, right, and and all of the evidence certainly points to Phoenicians being the miners of tin in Cornwall as early as 1500 BC. And there's evidence in classical histories that certainly supports that in the writings of men such as Herodotus. So there's also the Hallstatt, it's called a culture, the Hallstatt culture. But Hallstatt was the location of the salt mines that the Romans and the, and the Greeks before them, and, and probably the Malaysians even before the Greeks, had been mining for centuries. And they were all up and down at Danube River looking for natural resources, and especially for salt and for metal ore, iron ore or, or bronze or brass or whatever. Bronze is a, is a mixture of metals, but copper, anything that they could make metal out of. They were always searching for that, which is only normal. If you look at Greece, Greece has very few natural resources. So they had to import things from points north, and to get them, they had to go searching. They had to go searching for them. Okay, once the sheep were fed with the word of God in the gospel of Christ, something which the Roman church had endeavored to cease from doing, once it was assured that the little book would remain open, the mystery of God was completed because the proof of the identity of the people of God lies in the historic fulfillment of those prophecies concerning his people. So that is why in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 10, we read the words, Then the mystery of Yahweh is completed as he had announced by his servants the prophets. So to see the opening of the little book and what it means, we have to go see what it says in the words of the prophets. And we run into verses just like I, I have just elucidated. 
and and there are more than the ones I have chosen. I only chose a few verses, one from each prophet, to show that the same theme is repeated throughout the prophets. And I could have probably found a dozen more, just like those, to support my assertions here. So with that background, we shall commence with the Revelation. And once again, much of what we shall present from this point will be condensed from my February 2011 commentary on Revelation chapters 10 and 11. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, this will show that um, the Revelation is entwined with um, all the prophets, right? That you really have to read all the, the entire Bible, basically, in the prophets. And then all these phrases like witnesses and, and the serpent, it, it all starts to add up and you can start to decipher it, right? And it all begins to make sense and becomes clear, right? Well, well right. And, and that's why there's so many um, commentaries on Revelation that make up fantastic stories about what they think that the Revelation is saying. And that's because they haven't studied the Old Testament to realize that the Revelation is only a continuation of the Old Testament prophecies, which shows us who the people of God are. That's why it's a revelation. As we become Christian and fulfill those words of those Old Testament prophets. So this is part, this is proof number 67 and the identity of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. So I'm going to read, we're probably going to read most of, at least most of Revelation chapter 11, but I'm only going to read it a few verses at a time. So from verse 1, And he had given to me a reed like a staff, saying, Arise, and measure the temple of Yahweh, or God, and the altar and those worshiping at it. And of course, this is John himself explaining the visions which he saw. And the court outside the temple, leave out that you should not measure it, because it has been given to the heathens, and the holy city they shall trample for forty and two months. Now, of course, that word heathens could have been translated as nations, but where they're trampling the holy city, we can imagine that this is a reference to nations who are opposed to the people of God. So I translated it as heathens. While there are visions of future temples in the prophets and also in the Revelation, where there is also a vision of a future city of God come down from heaven, those visions should not be interpreted literally. God does not dwell in a house built with hands, as we learn from the New Testament scriptures, but he dwells in us. Or, as Christ, he dwells among us. And therefore, the temple of Yahweh is an allegory for his people in the world. That would be my assertion. We would have to review many of the New Testament scriptures in order to understand that. But the fact that God doesn't dwell in a house built with hands, and that Christ referred to the temple of God as his own body, are very clear in the New Testament and stated on several occasions. The 42 months. 42 months is the same as the 1260 days which follow in verse 3 below 
and 42 times 30 days equals 1260 days. And we had seen the same measurements of time in the corresponding visions of Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7, which we have already also discussed here several presentations ago. The word heathens here does not necessarily mean to describe aliens. It is basically nations or people. I've already described why I translated as heathens, getting ahead of myself a little. But where the word is appropriate, we've seen that it may very well indeed be translated as heathens when it refers to nations opposed to or in opposition to the will of God or apart from those people seeking to follow the will of God. So we would assert that here we see a vision of the faithful of his people Israel. They being the temple of God where Yahweh dwells, who would be separated from the beast church with the opening of the little book, while those outside would continue to be trampled by it. This does not mean that there are no Israelites in those nations, which remained Catholic after the Reformation but rather it is only an allegorical picture so that we may continue to look back at the history of our race and understand what it is that has happened to us, whether we were raised Catholic or Protestant. So we shall continue with verse 3, and I hope that made sense to you. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add. Yeah, yeah, and even um, the, the Catholic Church was forced to gradually change, right? And and now they pretend to uh, read scripture now and then and uh, because of this reformation, right? Because if not, it became so obvious that they were against Christianity. So, so it did cause a lot more people to actually study the Bible, right? Even if they remained Catholic to, to a degree. I mean, now uh, nobody really studies the Bible, right? None of the, it, it seems very few denominational pastors actually study the Bible, and when they do, they only study it so that they could confirm their church doctrines. And it doesn't matter if those doctrines stand in opposition to Scripture or not, they find ways to confirm their church doctrines, and it's no different with Roman Catholics. Continuing with Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, And I shall give to my two witnesses that they shall prophesy 1,260 days cloaked in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which are standing before the sovereign of the earth. Now, people make up all kinds of stories about the two witnesses. Every once in a while, there's people from one sect or another claiming to be the two witnesses, or their followers claim that they are the two witnesses. And it's just ludicrous. Here we read that the two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands, which are standing before the sovereign of the earth, who is Yahweh God himself. Much later than Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, at the beginning of the building of the second temple, in Zechariah chapter 4, there is a vision of two olive trees where we read, Then I answered and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? 
So they're next to, to a lampstand, right? A candlestick, same thing. And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And of course, the golden oil would be emptied into a dish where there would be a, a lamp and a wick to keep the lamp going, right? And he answered me and said, Knowest not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And that's another one that they... Uh... They try and claim, oh, that's only Christians or if you're of a certain denomination, right? But it's clear, once again, this could only be Israel and Judah, right? That The two anointed ones. The well, people. right. And, and we'll find the answer to that in Isaiah. Here in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses are the two olive trees, which are also the two lampstands. These are Israel and Judah. In Isaiah chapter 43, the word of Yahweh addresses the children of Israel and says, Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen. That means that they are the anointed ones, that you may know me and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, and have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you, in other words, once they put away their idolatry, therefore you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. So when Israel and Judah turned to Yahweh their God in Christ, and stood up for his word during the Reformation, rejecting the idolatry of Catholics and the, the Eastern Orthodox, they were witnessing that God is true, even if their fulfillment of the prophecy was unwitting. They didn't know what they were fulfilling. Since Yahshua Christ is the Lord of the whole earth, then the European peoples have proven themselves to be the children of Israel by becoming the primary vessels of Christendom. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1, speaking of Zion, Yahweh had said that the salvation thereof would be as a lamp that burns. Yahshua Christ is recorded as having said in Luke chapter 8, Now, no one lighting a lamp. Christ was lighting that lamp. No one lighting a lamp conceals it in a vessel or sets it under a couch but sets it upon a lampstand that those entering in would see the light. For there is nothing secret which shall not become evident, nor hidden which shall not be made known and brought to light. Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, Now you are the light of the society, which once again shows that Christ was lighting that lamp, a city sitting upon a mountain is not able to be hidden. Neither do they ignite a lamp and set it under a basket, but upon a lampstand, and it gives light for all those in the house. Thusly, you must give your light before men that they may see your good works and they may honor your Father who is in the heavens. Now, the Roman Catholic Church in its early centuries did to some great extent carry that light. 
But by the time of the reformers, they had ceased to carry the light. They had tried to snuff out the light. The European peoples are that shining city on the hill, the lamp which could not be hid, and they are the light of the world, for only they, out of all of the world's people, have tried to civilize the entire globe and, for better or worse, bring it under the rule of law, laws that were based on Christian law. No other people did that. And this all began after the Reformation took place, when the children of God laid aside the paganism of the Roman Church and embraced the Word of God. So if you just looked for the, the people who had a great Christian civilization, uh, those would be the, the people of God, the, the light of the world, right? And that if you're going to be Christian, it's inevitable that you couldn't hide it, right? You'd have to live the Christian way and it become obvious who, who the people of God are, right? Absolutely. I don't know how anybody could look at world history and understand these prophets and imagine that this could possibly describe any other people. It can't describe any other people. No African ever developed a society based on Christian law. They've had societies based on Christian law imposed on them. And the English came and drew a lot of lines in the map around a bunch of tribes and, and called them the Congo or, or some other name. I, I don't even know. Zaire, Uganda, Zimbabwe are all recent innovations of what were British names for all of those countries. And I can't and even remember. And they've always hated those British laws, names. right? So, so really, they hate the law of God. They hate God, essentially. Absolutely. I'm thinking of Rhodesia and, and the Congo and places like that were, were the British names for those for those countries that are today Zimbabwe and Zaire and, and Uganda. The Africans that rule those countries today only rule it because the British ceded, voluntarily ceded control of those places in the 1930s, 40s, 1950s, whenever, and basically abandoned their own British subjects to suffer whatever fate that the black hordes, the Negro hordes, wanted to impose on them. And uh, Zimbabwe was better off a hundred years ago as Rhodesia, right? In a hundred years of progress, it's actually worse off. Absolutely. It, it was a food exporter until perhaps 15 years ago. And now it, it relies on food rescue and food aid programs because they can't produce food because they've taken the farmers they've taken the farms away from the white men and handed them over to africans to negroes that can't possibly manage them and have only looted and pillaged them yeah savage, they can't even feed themselves right savage beasts are never going to maintain a society it's that simple and I don't know how anybody could imagine that they could possibly be the people of God. When have they ever been a shining city on a hill? They've only looted and pillaged those shining cities. The only time they create a shining city is when they're burning it down. And they've done that quite often, especially these last few years. Although they were blind to their actual identity, which is our problem today, that's the situation we're in today, Israel and Judah had been accepting and then in turn spreading the gospel 
for 1260 years, or in some cases a little longer, which represents the time from the passion of Christ and the spread of the gospel into Europe to the time when his people began to demand that they live by the word of God and not by the word of tyrants. And men from among them rose up to challenge the popes of Rome. By this time, all of the white tribes of Europe and the Middle and Near East had the opportunity to hear the gospel and convert to Christ, and the vast majority of them did. Yet, as the spread of the gospel into Europe was a process which took several centuries, so was the Reformation and the break from the Roman Church a process which took several centuries. John Wycliffe and his followers produced a translation of the Bible into English by 1384. Wycliffe opposed the Pope and the clergy of Britain, and he was persecuted for it, but died from apparently natural causes that same year, 1384. Wycliffe's writings influenced Jan Hus, who was burned at a stake in 1415. And at the same time, Wycliffe was also declared a heretic, and his papers were banned by the church. The followers of Huss then launched a successful revolution against the Roman Catholic Church, whereafter they remained independent of Rome for 200 years, until Bohemia was conquered and fell to Roman Catholic Habsburg rule during the Thirty Years' War. A hundred years after Jan Hus, the Reformation efforts of Martin Luther forced the break with the Roman Church of most of Germany and some of the surrounding nations. So continuing with Revelation chapter 11. And if one wishes to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if one should wish to harm them, thusly it is necessary for him to die. They had the authority to shut heaven in order that water would not rain in the days of their prophecy. And they had the authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every calamity as often as they should desire. None of this should be interpreted literally, but rather the revelation is written in symbols, all of which may be understood in the words of Christ or the prophets. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. Here the fire is the word of God to those who would resist it, and these two witnesses would prevail over all who oppose them in bringing it to light. The rain is the word of God to those who accept it, and there would be no fruit on the earth lest it come from Israel and Judah. The little book would be open, and no one could stop it. Thus we see that, in spite of the enemies of God, the Reformation would succeed in getting the Word of God into the hands of the people and keeping it there. And that's how I interpret this prophecy, in line with the promises of the words of the prophets. So continuing... And, um so, sorry. sorry, all the other races were at the mercy of us back then, right? What once we began to colonize, they we had absolute power over them when we were obeying uh, the word of God, right? Yes, we were, and and the the only reason why the popes had any influence after the Reformation is because that they had the 
I'm, 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 they, they had influence over the German kings who they exalted to the position of Holy Roman Emperor. Otherwise, all of Italy and Rome would have been at the mercy of the Germanic people, the Protestant Germans. The vanity of the nobility in seeking the glory of Rome and the glory of the past was political poison, I believe, for the cause of the Reformation. And that's another story, and there's two sides of every coin. The Reformation also had a bad side because Protestants, in their distaste for the Church of Rome, had gotten into bed with Jews as allies against the popes, which caused a lot of problems. And, and which still causes trouble today. And today the Protestants are worshipping Jews instead of Jesus. So you see where that went. Going back to Revelation chapter 11 from verse 7. And when her testimony should be completed, the beast which ascends from out of the bottomless pit shall make war with them, and shall conquer them, and slay them. And that's the 30 years war. And their bodies upon the streets of the great city, which is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where also their prince has been crucified, and those from among the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations shall see their bodies for three and a half days, and they do not allow their bodies to be buried in a tomb, and those dwelling upon the earth rejoice over them, and they delight and they shall send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets had tormented those dwelling upon the earth. And there's multiple levels of interpretation here which could be made, but I will stick to a more literal interpretation. The forces behind the popes who sought to oppress the nations are the same forces which were behind the crucifixion of the Christ. When we discuss the literal horn of Daniel chapter 7, in conjunction with the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13, we identify the little horn and the second of those beasts with the Roman Catholic popes. There we read that the beast derives its power from the dragon, which we shall see in Revelation chapter 12, when we discuss that, is associated with the Edomite Jews. But here, the testimony of the two witnesses, Israel and Judah, was completed when it was decided that they would seek to live by the word of God and not by the oppressive will of the Antichrist popes. Whether they knew it or not, and they certainly did not, this alone proves that the European peoples are indeed the people of God, the actual children of Israel, because it fulfills the prophecy of God concerning Israel that they would return to him through his Christ. This is also evident in part in Hosea chapter 2, verse 7, where it says of Israel, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, all of those idols of the other nations. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. So continuing from verse 11 of the chapter. And after the three and a half days, a spirit of life from Yahweh entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear had fallen upon those watching them. And I heard a great voice from out of heaven saying to them, Come up here. 
and they ascended into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And there had died in the earthquake seven thousand names of men, and those who remained became terrified and gave honor to the God of heaven. The second woe has departed. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. So we see that after the two witnesses, there would be great war, or it's described as an earthquake. And after the Protestant Reformation and the splitting of Protestant nations from the Roman Catholic Church, there was a great war in that 30 years war. So two aspects of this prophecy can be associated with that. Both where the beast, which descends from out of the bottomless pit, makes war with them and conquers and slays them, and also this great earthquake, which happens after their ascension into heaven. And that is all visible in the history of the Reformation. It must be mentioned that prior to the beginning of the 16th century, there were already great oppressions of those in Europe who disagreed with Rome on theological grounds. There were the persecutions of the sects of the Albigenses, or Cathars, from 1209 to 1229 AD, and also against the Waldenses, also called Waldensians, who were persecuted from that same time and into the 17th century. These sects openly opposed the materialism of the Roman Catholics. This was long before William Tyndale and John Huss, or Jan Huss, I should say. The so, three so and a half like days. It's, it's I, not just instant. It happens as an ongoing process uh, of centuries and centuries, just like the spread of Christianity, right? And then eventually it got to a point where there was no choice. They had to break away from the church. It was never going to change, right? Exactly. But we can roughly see the 1260-year period where the woman was nourished before these problems began, before they really began to culminate. The three and a half days of this prophecy here in Revelation chapter 11 represent three and a half years by the prophetic measure of a year for a day. And Bertrand Compare had related this three and a half days in which the two witnesses lay dead to the space of time between the convention of the Fifth Lateran Council and the alleged date of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the castle of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I would agree with that identification, but only in part. So Compare did very well to do that, but it's only half the story. It's really only one witness and not two. Before the, because one witness is Israel and one witness is Judah, right? So before the Fifth Lateran Council, which was originally convened by Pope Julius II, there was a strong move for reform centered in France, where King Louis XII had earned the name Father of the People, as he stood opposed to the rule of the Pope. He also supported several cardinals who sought reforms and broke from the Pope. The Venetians were his allies, the, the kingdom of Venice in Italy, right? The bishops of France sided with him. 
threatening to march on Rome, he had taken Mian and Ravenna. An ecclesiastical council hostile to the Pope was called at Pisa in Italy, but being threatened with violence by the local populace, it was moved several times. There were too many people that were on the side of the Pope, I gather, in Italy at that time. Eventually it failed, and it was dissolved without accomplishment. Louis then suffered a damaging military defeat at the hands of the Swiss, which put an end to his ambitions. The Fifth Lateran Council was called by Julius with an aim to further solidify the power of the papacy and to answer the calls for reform. Julius convened the council, but he died almost as soon almost as soon as it began on February twenty first, fifteen thirteen. The council did indeed go on to change Roman Catholicism, but probably not as Julius intended. The new pope was Leo X, whose real name was actually Giovanni de' Medici, the banking family of Florence. He was only 37 years of age when elected, and he was not even ordained as a priest. My bet would be he never even opened a Bible. He was elected March 11, 1513, and first presided at the Fifth Lateran Council in its seventh session on April 27, 1513. Among the decrees made at the council, one bull, papal bull, required that before a book could be printed, the local bishop had to give permission, because the church was at the same time attempting to forbid Christians from having copies of scripture, this would help ensure the success of those restrictions. Another bull concerned preaching, which left the church and the papacy free from any possibility of future criticism. Preachers were forbidden from associating current or future events with the fulfillment of prophecy, and they were forbidden from preaching about the sins of other clergy, publicly, publicly defaming the character of bishops, prelates, and others in authority. So clergymen would no longer be permitted to criticize any bishop or the pope or any cardinal. Another bull published by Leo X in 1515 sanctioned the Monte di Pieta, which were basically pawn shops operated by the church, supposedly to provide loans to the needy. They had attracted both support and opposition from within the church since their establishment in Italy 50 years earlier. Here, the Roman church began to approve usury for the first time, officially approve usury. The bull had instructed that the practice is perfectly lawful and that such loans were not to be considered an act of usury. Anyone who would disagree was threatened with excommunication. There were many other offenses to the scriptures, but these were the gravest as they restrict men from access to the word of God, 
while the edicts concerning usury are enough to demonstrate that the church was departing farther and farther from obeying the word of God. As a digression, four years after his great-niece was born, Catherine de Medici, who continually persecuted the French Protestant sect of the Huguenots. So, so I don't... Um, Leo was very strategic in um, all these restrictions, right? He knew exactly um, how they would slowly do it. They would eliminate the Bible, firstly, so that no one would, would be able to read and know what was wrong. And then any bishops like Martin Luther who did have access and could read it, they would restrict them from doing anything. So there was hoping to completely gain full control, right? Absolutely. Men like Martin Luther would have been completely stifled. He would have been he would never have been able to preach about the lies of the church with the money that it was basically extorting mostly from the German people in their indulgences and with their purgatory doctrine. Luther would never have been able to criticize those things again if he did not separate from the church and take the risk of his own head. And, um, sorry, one more, Catherine de, de Medici, that's where um, a lot of Jews started getting into the royalty, right? I believe that was one of the major ones, a, a Jew banking family was able to marry um, the King of France, and from there, many of their descendants spread out in, all over Europe, right? Oh, absolutely. And and Queen Victoria is one notable recent noblewoman who descended from Catherine de' Medici. And if, if, I mean, I cannot prove that the de' Medici's are Jews, but they certainly seem to be Jews because first they were a banking family at a time when usury was supposed to be prohibited to Christians. And the name de' Medici also reveals that their ancestors were were physicians, were doctors, so they were sorcerers, which was another occupation that was not held by Christians, not in the early medieval period. Christians were forbidden sorcery, and they saw the medical practices of the time as sorcery, which they clearly are. They still are today, but back then people realized it. Back then they knew it. So how did they become the princes of Florence? Well, we know that story, but where did they come from? And their, their beginnings are very obscure. And even mainstream sources, mainstream biographies of the, the Medici family admit that their origins are obscure. And they only guess. Well, well, there was a recent series they made on the the, the Medici's, and they just acknowledged that they're Jews, right? But of course, they try and spin it that they're great people, that they're helping the people of Italy and um, building great churches, and you know they're they're deeply devoted to God, but they admit that they're a Jewish banking family. I didn't, I, I didn't see that. I'm sorry, I didn't see the actual admittance that they're Jews. I would like to see that. Um, perhaps we'll figure that one out. Maybe the guys in the chat can help. <laughs> the the um the truth is that there are other prophecies concerning the royalty of Europe, I believe, 
in Isaiah where it speaks of the key of David being fallen. And I believe that at that time, that's when the key of David fell, was when the nobility of Europe began intermarrying with these Jewish merchants, especially from the 17th and 18th centuries. And it wasn't only the British that did it, the Prussians also did it. The French also did it. And and the French kings, after the time of Louis XII, the French kings did us no favors. They were constantly at war with the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were constantly turning to the Turks as allies in their wars against the empire. Francis I had even given up French ports on the Mediterranean so that the Turks could use those ports in their wars against the Venetians. Okay, so France was quick to turn its territories over to its home territories over to the use of Muslims in order to make war against other white European nations. And and it was the popes who were instigating these wars because they wanted to maintain control of Europe. That's another digression. Over the years leading up to the Fifth Lateran Council, the church had persecuted many reformers. During this council, there were many other edicts which consolidated the power of the pope and the bishops. But quite important to our interpretation of this prophecy, at this same council, the pope had accepted the submission of two of the surviving rebel cardinals from the the sedition against the pope of King Louis XII of France and received them as priests as they read a prepared statement of contrition and repudiation of their acts against the papacy. It was reported that thousands of people flocked to the Vatican to witness this event and to gloat over this spectacle of humiliation. Surely, those dwelling upon the earth rejoiced over the death of the rebellion against unbridled papal power. The idea of constructive reforms was indeed dead, and now the power of the Pope was even greater than at the start. Also, since bishops would have to approve the printing of books, the people may never have seen another Bible, since Bibles were already virtually banned from the people by prior papal decrees. Several months after the closing of the Fifth Lateran Council, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Luther's theses were publicized in response to the church's failure to reform. They were nailed to the door, supposedly, because some people think that the story is apocryphal, but nevertheless they were published. They were nailed to the door on All Saints Day, 1517, when pilgrims were going to Wittenberg for indulgences. An example of the importance that the church placed on a collection of indulgences is found in the preaching of men such as Johann Tetzel. He made claims such as that indulgences make the sinner cleaner than when coming out of baptism, that the cross of the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ.
and that indulgences make the sinner cleaner than Adam before the fall. Now, now that's all pretty bold, right? He is quoted as having said, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. And as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's what the Catholic Church was teaching. Pay us money and we'll get your relatives, your dead relatives, out of purgatory and get them up into the kingdom of heaven. Tetzel became so unpopular with the people that he had to hide in the Dominican convent at Leipzig for fear of popular violence. They were rebelling against it. They were tired of it. They were being told by the reformers that this is not in the Bible. This is not scripture. Jesus already paid the price for your sins. It was in this convent during Luther's debate in the city with Johann Eck on the subject of indulgences that he died. Tetzel being the biggest seller of indulgences at the time. The biggest, basically extortion collector for the for the pope for the pope in rome for rome luther's theses were an economic argument for luther they were theological rome was taking payments when jesus christ had already made the payment rome was charging for god's free gift rome was making people feel guilty for not doing enough when christ had already done it for all those who trust in him so what does the Catholic Church, how can they do better than that? But Leo X did not care about theology or scripture. The de' Medici Pope presided over the Fifth Lateran Council for nearly four years. And during that time, Italy and all of the supporters of the papacy rejoiced. If it were not for Martin Luther, all opposition to the papacy was stifled at this time. The children of Israel would not have the word of God, but would rather remain oppressed by the tyranny of the Roman church and the Jewish money power. Here, Israel and Judah appear to lay dead in the streets while the powers of the adversary prevailed. All that uh, stuff you just said, it sounds so Jewish, right, that um, that you're basically uh, your dead relatives will be in torment in purgatory unless you pay us money. Right. Right. It must have been a Jew who invented that. Exactly. I, I don't know how it couldn't have been a Jew that invented that. It, it's in, I don't know who this Tetzel was. I mean, we can't go back 400 years to see these men. Johann Eck debated with Luther over indulgences in support of the church practice of collecting these indulgences. And they would really lay these guilt trips on people. And, and the commoners of the time were fairly simple people. They weren't learned in rhetoric. They weren't learned in theology. And they were made to feel as if they, they had to pay these indulgences on behalf of their dead relatives. So they were being extorted by the church, which leveraged a false doctrine, this doctrine of purgatory, which is found nowhere in scripture. They leveraged that 
as a way to lay guilt on these people and, and collect money from them. And they didn't care about scripture, and they didn't care about teaching the people and, and, and raising up a righteous nation with the fostering of, of the reading of scripture. They didn't care about any of that, what, which the Bible teaches. They only cared about using them and squeezing them for every last dime. And um, would would Luther be reading the Latin Bible? Um, he, he must have been able to speak Latin then, right? Ostensibly, the Luther Luther's New Testament was translated from Greek. The way oh, I well, remember, so he 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 could read Greek, and that's how he was able to read the Bible. Well, he must have been able to read at least a good a good amount of Greek and Latin. I'm sure he was a priest. He would have been required to read Latin. And then he translated it into German for the, for the people, right? Yes, he translated Luther's Bible. I don't think he translated the entire Bible. I think he only translated the New Testament into German. And he, he even tried to the remove Old a few books, I'd right? be surprised. I'm sorry. Uh, he even tried to remove a few books, I believe, right? Yeah, I'm not sure of the entire history of it, so I really don't want to speak. It's been so long since I've read about Luther's Bible. The complete Bible was published in 1534, so that's within Luther's life. Whether it was published by Luther or not, whether it was translated by Luther or not, I don't know. And the printing press was just about coming, uh, you know, into fruition, right? So, so it's all all the great timing, right? Yahweh's will. That just around this moment when they're breaking away. Absolutely. Here, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. Luther did not speak Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic well enough and relied heavily on other scholars for assistance, namely philologists Erasmus and Melanchthon. That would be Philip Melanchthon. He was considered the second most notable man in the founding of the Lutheran Church. Philip Melanchthon was the son or nephew. He was the nephew of Johann Reuschlin. And Johann Reuschlin had fought to keep the Dominican monks from burning and banning the Talmud from Germany in the years and the decades before Luther. So Melanchthon would have been well-versed in a lot of the things I'm sure that his uncle was was well-versed in. And I believe, if I remember properly, they had a fairly close relationship. Erasmus was a humanist who was a, a scholar of the time in his own right. I, I don't, I think he was far from perfect. He was responsible for collecting manuscripts of the Textus Receptus, Greek manuscripts of the Textus Receptus. And if I'm not mistaken, the text that called itself the Textus Receptus, that advertised itself as the Textus, Textus Receptus, that was really an advertisement by the and I believe that they were Jews too, the, the Dutch printers that first published it, that was compiled from manuscripts that, Luth, that Erasmus had assembled. 
And I believe that they are the manuscripts that Luther based his New Testament on. But they're all relatively late manuscripts. None of them date before the, I don't think any of them date before the 12th century, if I'm not mistaken. I've written on all of this, but I can't keep it all in my head. Stephanus so any, came along. Um, quote unquote innovations would, would have naturally went through to the Luther Bible, right? Yes, there were many innovations in Erasmus's manuscripts. Whether Erasmus introduced them or not is another story. But yes, they would have made it into Luther's Bible. I don't know who translated Luther's Old Testament. I doubt it was Luther. From what I understand, he translated the New Testament while he was locked up in Prince Henry's castle, sweating out the, the break from the church in Saxony. That, that's what I understand. While he was, a, he, he was a virtual prisoner, he was in hiding from the Pope. He was being protected by the princes of Saxony, the Prince of Saxony. While we can agree with Compare that this period of the Fifth Lateran Council was a period where the two witnesses, Israel and Judah, lay prostrate before the beast. Perhaps this is only one of those two witnesses. Judah, perhaps, and I'm a lot more confident about this today than when I wrote this, perhaps the other one, for Ephraim as representing Israel, happens just 40 years later. For there is another period, a little later in England, where it also looked as though the Roman Catholic Church might prevail over the true saints of God, and it certainly warrants explanation here. It was the wantonness of Henry VIII which brought England to break away from the popes of Rome. The English Reformation was not because of goodness, it was because of Henry's sin. And in fact, Henry VIII was the first English king to accept usury since Edward I had barred usury in 1290 when he ejected all the Jews from England. So Henry VIII opened the floodgate for the Jews coming back to England especially in the time of Cromwell, when he began to accept usury. So, his successor was Edward VI, a very young ruler who died after an illness at 15 years of age. And when he fell ill with his Regency Council, which was mostly Protestant, he drew up a plan for succession which was an attempt to prevent his half-sister Mary from gaining the throne and returning the country to Roman Catholicism. The plan named his cousin, Jane Grey, as his heir. However, the plan failed, and Mary succeeded to the throne anyway, after Jane Grey ruled for a mere nine days. So Mary began her short and tumultuous reign at 37 years of age, arriving in London amid a scene of great rejoicing. Again, with the victory of Catholicism over the Reformation, those dwelling upon the earth rejoiced over the subjection of the children of Israel to the earthly power of the Pope. Following the disarray created by Edward VI's passing, of the succession to Jane Grey, Mary's first act was to repeal 
the Protestant legislation of her brother, Edward VI, hurling England into a phase of severe religious persecution. And that lasted three and a half years, just like the edicts of the sixth of the Fifth Lateran Council were in force for three and a half years before the final act of defiance on, on the part of Martin Luther. Mary issued a proclamation that she would not compel any of her subjects to follow her religion. But by the end of September, leading reforming churchmen, such as John Bradford, John Rogers, John Hooper, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Kramer, were all imprisoned. This was done in her first parliament in October of 1553. Another of Mary's first actions as queen was to order the release of the Roman Catholic Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardner from the imprisonment in the Tower of London, as well as her kinsman Edward Courtenay. They were all Catholics that were imprisoned during the Protestant Reformation. Her primary goal was the reestablishment of Catholicism in England, something to which she was totally committed. While Edward was king, he repeatedly harassed her to give up Catholicism, and she steadfastly refused. Her persecutions came more from a desire for what she considered to be purity in faith than from vengeance. Yet nearly 300 people, including former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Kramer, and many of the most prominent members of society, were burned at the stake for heresy, earning Mary the nickname Bloody Mary. Church doctrine was restored to the form it had been in 1539, before the time of Henry VIII, the, before he broke away from the church. The English church was officially returned to Rome in 1554, under an agreement with Pope Julius III. Under the Heresy Acts, numerous Protestants were executed in the Marian persecutions. Many rich Protestants, including John Fox, the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, had chosen exile, and around 800 of them left the country. All told, 283 persons were executed, mostly by burning. The burnings proved so unpopular that even one of her husband's own ecclesiastical staff condemned them. Mary persevered with the policy, which continued until her death. Queen Mary died at the age of 42 from an influenza epidemic on November 17, 1558. This ended three and a half years of persecutions and executions of Protestants. The victims of the persecutions were honored as martyrs. During this period, it looked as if England may remain Catholic and therefore under the rule of the Pope. Mary's husband, Prince Philip of Spain, had attempted to concoct a plan that would prevent Edward's and Mary's other half-sister, Elizabeth, from succeeding, but he failed. Elizabeth I ascended to the throne of England and... England returned to Protestantism, this time permanently. So we have a second three-and-a-half-year period where Protestantism looked dead, and it was revived. 
And Bill, um, generally Judah and Ephraim were the two leaders of of Israel, right? So, and and if you look at Europe, Germany is generally the powerhouse, and, and Britain. And if those two turn to Protestantism, generally the rest of Europe w- would follow, right? So that even though it just says um, Israel and Judah, perhaps just referring to Ephraim and Judah, it would also mean all the rest would generally follow, right? Well, well, right, and that is true, and many more did follow. Practically all of Germany was leaning towards Protestantism, while the northern half was Protestant, and also Poland and several other surrounding nations. But many of them were brought back to Roman Catholicism with the Jesuit Counter-Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. And it's also interesting that... um you know, um, back to the uh, kingdom period that um, that the northern kingdoms were worse off than Judah, right? And and when you look at uh, Germany actually just stood up generally for, for the Bible and it was only because of uh, Henry's uh, indulgences in wanting so many wives that they, that they broke away, right? Uh, kind of when you compare um, Israel and Judah that J- Judah followed at least more closely to, to Yahweh, right? somewhat similar to the kingdom period perhaps lucy right and even later on in history only germany stood up uh, against the jews right with, with hitler right well it's right and that was another catholic to... that that was another christian revolution well that was a christian war when when germany stood up against international jewry and sought autonomy for the german people and to redress the grievances that were left against Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. The reparations at Versailles, which which were imposed on Germany, were incredible. But Germany was defeated by world Jewry, which was in control of the USSR through Bolshevism and England and the United States through capitalism. And that was probably the last Christian war. There's only going to be one more. Going on with Revelation chapter 11, and the seventh messenger sounded the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the society of our prince and of his anointed has come. Those two anointed ones, Israel and Judah, and he shall rule for the eternal ages. And the 24 elders who are sitting on their thrones before Yahweh fell upon their faces and worshiped Yahweh, saying, We thank you, Prince Yahweh, the Almighty, he who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. And the heavens had been angry. Let your, yet your anger is come. I'm sorry, the heathens had been angry. Yet your anger is come, and the time to judge of the dead, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, to the small ones, and to the great ones, and to destroy those destroying the earth. And of course, it was far from over. But the success of the Protestants over the Roman Church ensured the rise to world hegemony of the truly Christian European peoples, who constitute the true kingdom of God. Now they possess the kingdom of God on earth permanently. However, they are also under many other prophecies which are still being fulfilled, and their final restoration does not come until Babylon finally falls.
The third woe does not come until the later chapters of the Revelation. There were two sides of the coin to the Reformation in Germany, where the Reformers were basically in bed with the Jews that wanted to also escape the tyranny of the Roman popes. And they had their own plans. But in England, Elizabeth I, who, who returned England to Protestantism, had also been entranced by John Dee. And John Dee was a sorcerer, basically. He should have been <laughs> burned at the stake. He was a sorcerer who, in turn, introduced the Kabbalah into the English court. He brought the Kabbalah from Germany, from the alchemists in Germany. So John Dee had basically set in place what later became speculative masonry. And under James I, the speculative masons, who were all Kabbalists and alchemists, they were allowed to merge into the Masonic lodges of Freemasons, who were originally only stonemasons, and created Freemasonry, which we know has been a plague ever since, and, and a, a great vehicle for Jewry to turn European and American Protestants into Zionists because Freemasonry is basically Judaism for Goys and Zionism for Goys. That's another story. That's another digression. So the struggle continues. But it was supposed to. Continuing at Revelation chapter 19. And the temple of Yahweh, who is in heaven, opened, and the ark of his covenant is seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunders and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And the symbolism of the ark of the covenant is an assurance that these people who are Christians and who bear the witness of the gospel are those same people who were in the exodus with Moses and wandered in the desert for 40 years. True Christians are small-c Catholics, the original meaning of the term Catholic when the earliest church writers had used it, when the earliest Christian writers had used it, which were those who accept that both Old and New Testaments are true and apply to them. They may not have known how, but they accepted that, and it is true. The children of Israel, as soon as they departed from the Catholic Church and sought the will of God, in a few hundred years built the greatest nations that the world has ever known. However, once Satan was let out of the pit, the great civilization of Protestant Christendom began to decay. The only hope that we have for salvation in this world is to reject the things of this world and return to Yahweh our God. We do not realize to what degree the Reformation helped to create the modern world, for better or worse. A vast number of people from England, France, Germany, and Holland, Protestants, had settled new colonies in the colonial period and faced the wilderness in search of religious liberty. The so-called Age of Liberty and the introduction of parliamentary democracy were also facilitated by the Protestant Reformation, otherwise they would not have been possible.
I'm not saying it's all good. The age of liberty has been mostly poison for us, and so has parliamentary democracy. But that's the degree to which these people of the Reformation, these Protestants, had shaped the modern world. It was not shaped by Roman Catholics. Yeah, and, and Bill, I, I looked up once that um, Protestant actually means witness. Uh, have you ever heard of anything like that? Just the, the actual meaning of the word? Just relevant to this proof? Well, no, I haven't. But Protestant comes from the word protest. It's one who is protesting, as far as I'm concerned. That's the obvious meaning of it. Yeah, against the Catholic Church tyranny, right? Yes. Well, they were reformers. And because the church refused to reform, they were forced to either pay obeisance to the Pope or become Protestants. So if you love God more than men, you become a Protestant because the popes were not following God and they still don't. And um, as you said, we just need one more uh, reformation, right? The last one to go. Yes, sir. There's going to be one more great reformation. But then there aren't going to be any popes or any Jews or any squat monsters or anything else like that or any Muslims. Okay, we could digress about that for hours. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Thanks, Ami Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race and people. Thank you. Good night.